So thank you to all those who just read. Uh, I know that it wasn't that easy to do it. So what languages did we just hear? French, yep. Afrikaans. Greek or Hebrew? Greek. So when we were listening to Paul's letter, we were, we were hearing it in the language that he wrote it in. So that was the original. Luckily we would get to read English versions. And Fijian. I was trying to work out what Barbara was reading in. So thank you all, and Māori obviously, at the, for the Gospel. So Pentecost is an amazing time. It's when the disciples, as we saw in the uh, little video clip at the beginning of the service, uh, suddenly were able to speak uh, a whole lot of languages. And uh, Luke in Acts records 15 of them. And Pentecost is seen as a really important festival for us as Christians. So, why is that? Why is Pentecost so important? What comes to mind when you think about Pentecost? Just turn to your neighbour for 30 seconds and talk about what comes to mind when you hear about Pentecost. Okay, what kind of things did you come up with? Speaking in tongues. Well, in fact, it was speaking in languages, not in tongues. Tongues is an entirely different gift. So on this occasion, they were speaking the languages of the people who were present in Jerusalem. So we often get a bit confused about that. We think, oh, this is the first time tongues were spoken. But it wasn't. That's later. This is where people spoke in the languages of the people who were there. So what else is Pentecost about? Not being able to take candles into the church in St Mary's after our church burned down. <laughs> right. Okay, well, that's fair. Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit comes amongst us and everyone. Yep. Right. So they got it, it became personal, and I'm going to talk a bit about what I think some of that's about in a moment. Anything else? Sorry? It's always good to hear things in your own language. And that, as I said in the pew shed, is a really significant difference about Christianity. If you look at Judaism and and Islam and a lot of other major world religions... They, are, they operate in the language of the founder. Christianity does not do that. From day one, it was in the language of the people. Mostly. We get sidetracked every now and again, but that's how it's supposed to operate. Joyce. The day the church began. The day the church began. This is our birthday. So often, we will have birthday cakes today. So I don't know if we have one today, but... That's because this is the church's birthday. So we're nearly 2,000 years old. So this is an important occasion for us. There's a lot going on. One of the interesting things about the Pentecost story, though, is that 
There are two versions. We heard two versions today. We heard Acts, the Luke's version in Acts, and we heard John's version. And they are very different. And we usually read John through Luke's version in Acts. So we have this timeline in our head that, first of all, there's the crucifixion and resurrection. And then Jesus comes back and everyone hangs around in Jerusalem for 40 days. And then we have the ascension. And then there's another 10 days of hiding in rooms. And then the Spirit comes and things really get going. But John's timeline is very different. John's timeline is on the day of resurrection, Jesus ascends into heaven. And then he comes back and the resurrected and ascended Jesus meets them in the upper room. And Jesus breathes on them and gives them the spirit, the spirit of peace. Now both authors said that the spirit came and it came on everyone. But their timelines, you can't even begin to put them together. One is 50 days, resurrection, ascension, spirit comes. The other one is resurrection, ascension, all happening basically at the same time. And we know that because John says to Mary, uh, Jesus says to Mary and the other woman, you cannot touch me because I have not yet been to my father. And at the next appearance, he doesn't care who touches him. He has been to the Father and he's back. So that's a resurrected and ascended Jesus in their midst. And it's day one that he is breathing the Spirit on them. Very different. And we could spend a lot of time talking about why they are so different and what that means. But essentially, what they're saying is the Spirit came and things began. Last year I preached a sermon on this day, which I'm kind of going to repeat a bit, because the thing that strikes me about Luke's account in Acts is in fact the last question that the disciples ask Jesus. Can anyone remember, we heard it last week, just as a clue, can anyone remember what that very last question was that the disciples ask Jesus? having been with him for three years, having been through the crucifixion, having hung out with him for 40 days after he rose again in Jerusalem, their very last question. Well, that would you would think that would be the question. When will we see you again? But no. No, that wasn't the question. Hmm? How did we get to heaven? No, they weren't interested in heaven. That kind of interest in heaven comes later. Their question was, is now when the kingdom of Israel will be restored? They were still waiting for the Romans to be overthrown and probably the high priests. Galileans weren't big fans of the high priests. Galileans thought the high priests were basically a bunch of money grubbers who would do anything to get more money and didn't have much to do with God. Which, you know, on reflection, probably wasn't far from the truth. Uh, And uh, 
a little bit later, there were a little group of assassins that liked to go around and kill high priests and their families. So, you know, not the best liked people in Jerusalem or, or across that whole region. So, but that's what they were looking for. Still, the pushing out of the Romans, the end of the high priests, and the restoration of the kingdom of Israel, and when they were talking about that, they were looking far, far back, all the way to David, because David, he was the golden age. He was the epitome of everything that the kingdom of Israel was about. They remembered David as the great king who ruled the 12 tribes. And during his reign, there was peace and there was prosperity and all was wonderful. Those were great days when David was king and the kingdom of Israel, when it is restored, will be just like that. The trouble is, the just like that that they were remembering didn't really happen that way, did it? Because if we know anything about David, the first thing we'll know is it wasn't really such a good time of peace. He was at war pretty much the entirety of his reign. Fighting off the Philistines who weren't that happy about this little kingdom in their territory. And... Well, it wasn't that peaceful within the realm either. The end of his time, there was a civil war when his son, Absalom, was able to take over the crown with a pretty big, a lot of support from the court. So David wasn't, you know, everyone didn't think that David was the bee's knees. They actually, a whole lot of them thought he wasn't that great. And, well, David himself, well, he had a few flaws, like, one day, while he was exercising up on the uh, top of his palace, he was able to look down and he spied quite the beautiful woman called Bathsheba. And he thought, well, she'd be quite nice to have as a wife. So he organised for her husband, Uriah the Hittite, to be killed in battle so that he could then have Bathsheba as his wife. So there were a few flaws in David's character. And the time wasn't that flash. And after that came... Solomon, the wise, who also reintroduced slavery and high taxes so that he could do this massive building program in Jerusalem, which, if you think about it, was kind of why they left Jerusalem, because they uh, left Egypt, because they got tired of being slaves and working really hard on building projects. So they went to the land of milk and honey, where Solomon kind of reintroduced all that stuff for his building projects. So those times that they looked back to and thought those were wonderful, they weren't that wonderful. They were quite hard times. And as I think about those disciples and their longing for what had been and for their despair of their current situation, well, I think about us. And I think about what do we long for? As we look back, what is it that we wish it was like those good old days? People often tell me, they were such great days. We had those really big Sunday schools. And we had youth groups. And people were in churches were always full. Everyone came to church. Only, only everyone didn't come to church. I wonder when we look back and we just wish it was like it was in the good old days, whether those good old days really were that good. 
and whether we're doing exactly what those disciples were doing, putting on our rose-tinted glasses and longing for something that never really existed. For me, the miracle of Pentecost was that those disciples stopped looking backwards to how it had been and they took off their road to, to glasses and their, man, weren't the good old days so great, let's go back to those days before those nasty Romans came along and they started seeing what was right in front of their noses now. If I asked you what you look back for, well, I don't know what kind of answers I'd get. I know personally, I miss free doctor's visits. Because us clergy used to get free doctor's visits. And if you get the right older doctor still today, you get them still. I don't. I don't actually hanker for what it was like in the past. Because I'm far too excited about what's happening now. I think there are really interesting things happening in the church. And I'm really excited about the fact that I'm part of the church now. I don't want to be part of the church as it used to be. I remember that. And actually it was a little bit boring. And I don't remember it being the most exciting place whenever I went. And it wasn't the most welcoming place for a young person, to be honest. It felt like you had to be about 50 before you were taken seriously. And as a 20-year-old, that was a long way away. So, you know, church as it was, wasn't that flash. Yes, some people used to go, but for a lot of us, it was hard work. So I'm excited about the present. And I'm excited about what is happening amongst us now. I've just finished reading a book called Christianity for the Rest of Us, How the Neighbourhood Church is Transforming the Faith by Diana Butler Bass. Um, she's a, an American, North American, uh, and she did a three-year study on vibrant, growing, liberal, mainline churches. Now, those kind of words for most of us feel like a bit of an oxymoron. You don't get vibrant, growing, liberal, mainline churches. Everyone knows that to be vibrant and growing, you have to be evangelical and conservative and have bands playing modern music. That's, that's the rule. And if you don't have that, you are curtains. Well, she went to a vibrant, growing, liberal mainline church and she wondered whether, you know, are there others across North America? So she spent three years trolling around North America, visiting all these churches, and then she wrote a whole lot of books about this. And made a bit of money. So on top of her, um, her job as a professor in a theological university. And she discovered actually there were quite a significant number of growing, vibrant, liberal mainline churches in North America. And she wanted to find out what were the common factors. What made them, she thought, grow. And so I'm not going to give you the whole book. But at the end she kind of summarises it into three factors or marks. The first was a connection to tradition. Now that kind of goes against what lots of people tell us. They tell us if you want to be vibrant and growing, you need to get rid of the liturgy, you need to be stop being so stuffy and old, and be modern, because that's what people want today. But in fact, in North America at least, what she discovered was that there were actually a whole lot of people 
that really enjoyed the liturgy and really enjoyed it being done well, and that involved Lutheran churches with, with their ministers in robes and incense and just almost Catholic liturgy, and these churches were growing, not just with older people but with young people as well, because there was something about that tradition that anchored them to a faith that is 2,000 years old, to a faith and an, or, that goes back to Pentecost 2,000 years ago. And the second thing she discovered was a commitment to Christian practices. Practices like prayer and fasting and working amongst the poor. That church wasn't just something that happened on Sundays. In those parishes, it was a way of life. And Sunday was important because it informed the rest of the week. And lastly, she discovered that they had a concern to live God's dream of a just and peaceful society. She called that wisdom. In her book, she suggests that the whole point of Christian faith is transformation. At the heart of the Christian life is the promise that we will be transformed. That we will be transformed as individuals, that we will be transformed as churches, and that we will be transformed as societies. And if we go back to that first Pentecost, that's exactly what happened. That group of people who longed for the Romans to be expelled and who longed for the kingdom of David to be restored were transformed and they stopped longing for that. And they were able to see what God was doing right now in their midst. And they then set about transforming Judaism, their faith community, by meeting in the temple and becoming renowned as the champions for the poor. And that slowly spread out around the Roman Empire and changed history. That little group of people who were there on that first Pentecost changed history because of that first Pentecost. Well, we are part of that story. Part of that story that changes individuals, changes churches, changes societies. Today we are invited to stop looking backwards and longing for the good old days and instead to take note of what God is doing around us in our churches, in our society. To hear God's invitation to be connected deeply into our tradition the way that God breathes life into us as Jesus' spirit was breathed into the disciples in that upper room. And we're invited to be people who live deeply a life of Christian practice so that we and those we meet will be transformed. And we are invited to join in God's dream of a just and peaceful society. That's what Pentecost is about. Today is our AGM, an occasion where, well, an occasion that, let's face it, a lot of people don't get very excited, and probably the numbers at the service betray that a little bit. Uh, it's something we have to do. Every year, the rules say we have to have an AGM. 
And so we kind of do the service and we do the thing and we try to get through it as quickly as possible. But I want you today to think about it as a really important opportunity, a God-given opportunity, an opportunity to take stock, to take a breath, to stop looking back to the good old days and to be reminded about what God is doing right here and now in our midst. We can kind of live that without actually ever noticing. But AGMs are a chance for us to notice and to give thanks and to join in a bit more deliberately and to be excited and not bored or forlorn. So at our AGM today, I hope that you will be excited, that you will give thanks for all that God is doing and will be excited about what God will do in the next year. Because that's really what it should all be about.